Good morning. About uh, 20 years ago, give or take a few years, <laughs> I noticed uh, three small bumps on my arm uh, underneath what used to be at the time a wristwatch. In those days, we were wearing wristwatch because we didn't have one of these in our pockets all the time. And uh, I went to the doctor about them, and the doctor didn't know what they were, and he figured, well, I'll do a biopsy. That was very painful. Um, came out negative. He's like, I don't know what it is. Uh, by the time the biopsy healed, the bumps disappeared, and I was like, okay, they're gone, so I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, then they appeared again about a year later, another part of my hand, and um, I went to another doctor, and uh, that doctor looked at them and like, well, I think it might be fungus. So I'm going to try to scrape a sample, and I'll submit it do some testing, so he takes like a razor blade and starts trying to shave a little bit off, and uh, it starts bleeding, and he's like, that's not supposed to bleed if that's fangus I'm removing. You know, he you know, fixed it with some, uh, some uh, super glue. That's the first time I had super, super glue applied to uh, a cut uh, that worked okay. But he did uh, give me a um, referral to a specialist of skin diseases. Uh, and so I went to a skin specialist, and she immediately recognized what it was. And I forget the name, but in Latin it means something like anomalous bumps, right? In Latin, I forget what that exactly is. Um, and she said it's fairly rare. It happens, I don't know, maybe one out of a thousand people has them, but they're harmless, right? I mean, they just come and go. But she called her assistant to use me as an example. And she said, you see, this is what it looks like when somebody has this particular skin condition. And I became, at that point, what you call a case study. Right? And uh, today we're going to look at a person who's um, considered to be one of the monsters of history, uh, one of those people who, who was so evil in the eyes of society that uh, his name has often been associated with people like Stalin uh, and Hitler and uh, Genghis Khan, people who have done tremendous atrocities. This person's name is associated with them. And it's evil for us to dismiss him in such a way and say, well, this is just a monster of iniquity, and we're just going to look down at him. I'd like us instead to look at him as a case study of sin a case study of sin. You may not care about someone who has the condition that I have on my hand because it's probably uh, not going to affect you. It's a fairly rare condition. Not so with sin. Sin is a disease that affects the entire human race. We all have the disease of sin. And so it makes sense for us to look at it as a case study and think of how it applies to ourselves. Okay, with that, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matt actually preached on the first half of the chapter last week, but uh, the story kind of weaves in and out between Herod and the wise men and Joseph. 
And uh, it's easier to get a full picture of Herod if we look at the whole chapter. So I understand this will be a little bit of a review for those of you who were here last Sunday. But go ahead and bear with us. We will really focus on Herod this time, not on the other uh, characters of the story. So Herod, rather Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So that's the first thing we notice is the Messiah has arrived in the form of a baby. Jesus was born. Wise men, this would be a star uh, gazers, people who would study the stars, could tell from the constellation that a momentous event happened, and perhaps using prophecies that they had, they knew this signified that a king of the Jews has been born. So here come wise men, these uh, experts of the study of the stars, come to Jerusalem and say, the king of the Jews has been born. Take us to him so that we may worship him. Now, there's one problem. Herod was the king. And he doesn't know of anybody who's been born. So in his mind, this is an usurper, somebody who will take his place as a king, and he's not happy about it. And so we see in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. We often... Uh, like to think of ourselves as religious people, as spiritual people. We would say that we love God, and uh, that's all fine and well at a distance. But what would you do if God comes knocking on the door of your house? Would you open the door and let him in? How comfortable are you with the presence of God? And we see that Herod was not comfortable in having God come to call. Uh, he, uh, not just him, but also it says, um, it says all Jerusalem with him. Nobody in Jerusalem was really comfortable with the thought that the Messiah has really arrived. They were uncomfortable uh, with the thought of it. Why are we uncomfortable at the coming of God? Well, Genesis chapter 3 gives us a clue into it. We're all familiar with the story of the Garden of Eden and uh, Adam and Eve being given an opportunity to live under God's laws and enjoy God's blessings. But the serpent comes and the serpent tempts them and says, no, you should eat of this fruit that God commanded you not to eat. And this is the account in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So Eve knew that there was a warning by God that if they would eat of the fruit, they would die. The serpent denies that, says you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What did the serpent promise? The serpent promised that when they ate the fruit, they 
will have their eyes open, they will be able to recognize what's good and what's evil, and they won't have to follow God anymore. They're going to be like gods themselves. It was really a move of independence from God. We don't need God, or at least we will not need God, if we take of that fruit. And that was why they decided to do it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, why so that I don't need God anymore, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. It was a declaration of independence from God. We don't need God anymore because now we have the wisdom to choose what we're going to do for ourselves. Right? That was what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And we see this to be true in Psalm chapter 2. David describes for us uh, the attitude of mankind against God, and this is thousands of years later. And he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So the heart of man hasn't changed in thousands of years. It does not want God to rule over us. Now, I was raised in Israel uh, as an atheist. I uh, didn't take God seriously. Uh, I did have occasional thoughts about God because God still reaches out even to people who don't believe he exists. But uh, mostly I, I didn't think much about him until some of you remember uh, the day I visited Calvary Bible Chapel. I was actually seeking for a wife, not for God. But I got challenged by the fact that people here genuinely believed in God. And I started asking the question, well, how do I know that there is no God. And uh, Rick Bellis shared some prophecies with me. Other people shared prophecies with me until I came to the point where I realized Jesus had a fair claim to be the Messiah of Israel. And you think, wow, I would rejoice, right? Right? As a, as a Jew, I would rejoice to find out that the God of Israel exists. I would rejoice to find out that the Messiah of Israel has been identified. But I had the very opposite reaction in my heart. I did not want to obey him. I did not want him to have authority over my life. I wanted to do what I wanted to do, right? And all of this is showing us really the first uh, characteristic of the disease of sin, and that is disloyalty toward God. The disease of sin uh, characterizes itself by a disloyalty toward God. We don't really love God. We don't really want to follow God. We don't want to obey God. Now, God, in sending Jesus to us, knew that we needed him. Right? We, uh, Adam and Eve, thought they didn't need God. They could, um, they could rebel against God. People throughout history felt they did not need God. They can rebel against God. I felt I didn't need God when I first heard about him and I was challenged by him. But the truth is, we do 
need God. He created us to have a relationship with himself. Right? It's like a child, a little child, needs a father. Right? Because he was designed for that relationship. We were designed to have a relationship with God. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, uh, 28 and 29, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It sounds counterintuitive. You think, well, if I come to Jesus and I accept his authority over me, won't I be like a servant or a slave? He'll tell me to do this or to do that. I'm not going to be um, as comfortable as I am now. I'm not going to have as much uh, freedom as I have now. I'm not going to have as much rest as I have now. I'll be busy and working for him all the time. But Jesus says the opposite. If you come to me, you will have rest. He describes us as those who labor and, heavy, and are heavy laden. We were not designed to rule ourselves. We were designed to be ruled by God. He is gentle. Right? He doesn't make me work and labor to tire myself. He wants me to have rest. He wants me to have peace. And so when I come to him and accept his authority over me, I actually enjoy rest. I actually enjoy peace because that's what he made me for, right? For a relationship with him. So he's calling us, ourselves to him, us accepting him and his authority is not bad for us, it's good for us. But because of sin, we reject him and we want to have nothing to do with him. Okay, so that's the first characteristic. Here's the second one. So when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. What does he do? And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. What does Herod do about Jesus? Well, we could already tell he, he was disloyal to God. He wasn't interested in God ruling over him, but he wouldn't uh, be upfront about it. Instead of saying, this king must die, you guys go find him, and I'm going to take care of him once and for all. Right? He doesn't do it. He is deceitful about it. Right? He first gathers all the chief priests and the scribes and says, you know, where is the Christ supposed to be born? I want to know. Right? I am so religious. I am so spiritual. I am interested in him. Right? And they tell him, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. 
Okay, well, that's good. So I know he's in Bethlehem. But I need to also know which of the children in Bethlehem he is. So he calls the wise men and says, okay, when did the star appear? And he finds out when he appears, and then he sends them to Bethlehem, say, search carefully for the child. When you have found him, I will come and worship him also. Right? He hides the fact that he actually wants to kill Jesus, which we, we will see clearly afterward. He wants to kill him. But he hides the fact. And that's the second characteristic of sin. The first one was sin is disloyal toward God. And the second one... Uh, Sin is a disease that seeks to avoid diagno diagnosis? Diagnosis. Diagnosis, okay. <laughs> Sin is a disease that seeks to avoid diagnosis. It doesn't want to be that. We don't want people to recognize our sin. We want our sin to be secret, right? Just like Herod wanted his sin to be secret. And we see that also in Adam and Eve. If you remember right in the garden, what's the first thing that happens? Genesis 3 verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first thing they do is hide, right? Why did they hide? They hid because they knew that what they did was wrong and they didn't want to be caught. Uh, I have a picture here, not the most attractive uh, creature in the world. Uh, what is that? I'm sorry? Scorpion. An ant? Scorpion. Scorpion? No? Any more guesses? A cockroach. Yeah, that's a cockroach. Okay. <laughs> okay. What do we know about cockroaches? They last forever. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's like sin too, right? What else? They hide, yeah. Why do you think they hide? I'm sorry? They don't like light, right. They hide from the light, right? So I'm sorry, I, my hearing is really not good, so you have to kind of yell at me to hear you. So why do they hide? We don't like them, right, okay. So what, what will we do because we don't like them? You will probably step them, <laughs> right? So they have a good reason to be hiding. Why do we hide our sin? Why do we hide our sin? We don't want people to judge us, right? We don't want the consequence for sin, right? I mean, God will judge sin. Adam and Eve knew it wasn't a good thing that they sinned against God. And we instinctively know there is a knowledge in us that there is a judgment coming against our sins, and we don't want that. And so we hide our sins. What is it that you do behind closed doors that you will not do in the open, in public? 
Yeah, see? And, uh, and yeah, so that's Herod and that's the rest of us. We all have, have the same problem of sin. Now God doesn't want us to be hiding uh, our sin. It says in uh, 1 John chapter 1, uh, this is the message which we have heard from, the, from him and declare to you that God is light. And he, in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? God wants us to be open about our sins so he can help us with it, so he can, so he can clean us from our sins. He wants us to confess our sins, not do it behind either, either. No, he doesn't want us to do it in public either. He wants us to stop doing it, right? But he doesn't want us to hide it, right? He can see it. He knows our sin. He wants us to come out with it and confess it to him and seek the cleansing that he came to, to offer us. Jesus came to save us from our sins. If we're willing to confess our sins, then, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so uh, moving on. We're going to skip the uh, next few verses in the chapter because they just deal with the wise men worshiping Jesus. And uh, we'll pick up in verse um, 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod. So remember, Herod told them, when you find a child, come tell me about it. Right, so I can come and worship him too. He was deceiving them, right? He wanted to actually kill Jesus. But uh, they were divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed to their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, <clears throat> out of Egypt I called my son. Now I'm just going to read the next half of the next verse. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men. I'll stop there because that has the uh, third part, uh, third characteristic of sin. And uh, that is, sin is the disease that always deceives us. Sin is the disease that always deceives us. Herod was deceived. He had his plan. He figured out 
how he could get rid of Jesus and be happy, right? That was really his purpose. He looked at Jesus as a threat. Right now I'm king, I'm powerful, I'm happy. Like, there's a big question mark whether Herod was really a happy man or not. But uh, Jesus was a threat, so I have a plan, and I'll get rid of Jesus, and I'll be happy again. Right? Didn't happen. Right? Why? Because God knew what he was going to do. God warned the wise men. God warned Joseph. Jesus was safely delivered to Egypt out of Herod's reach, and now Herod can't do anything to Jesus. Okay? And he doesn't even know what Jesus is at. Right? Because the wise men didn't come and tell him about it. So he was deceived. Now, this might seem a little bit disconnected, but uh, I, I would say that sin is, is a disease that always deceives us as well. Sin always offers something that looks attractive to us, right? Something that we think will make us happy. But when we pursue it and actually do the sin that we believe will make us happy, do we feel happy? No, we feel empty. Right? It deceived us. There's a great verse about it in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. This is God's condemnation against the nation of Israel. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So the accusation against Israel is they forsook God and they sought other ways in which to fulfill themselves uh, through idols or, or whatever it is that they thought would make them happy other than God. And God uses the, a picture called uh, comparing himself to a fountain of living water and what they were seeking to be cisterns. So this is a good opportunity for a lesson in history or geography. But uh, Israel is a country that, um, similar to California, doesn't get rain in the summer. So we tend to get rain in the winter, not a lot, but kind of like California, comes up and down. Some years you get more rain than others. Summer, no rain at all, right? What do you do to get water in the summer? What do you do to get water in the summer? So for you, it's easy. You have a faucet in your house, right? You turn it open, and it has water, right? But where does that water come from? Well, that water might come from a reservoir, like uh, the Hetch Hetchy uh, in the Sierras. And there's all these pipings that kind of carries the water to your house. They didn't have that two, 3,000 years ago in Israel, right? They didn't have that two or 3,000 years ago here. But here we developed solution for water problems. In Israel, what they did is they would basically dig holes in the rock. And they might try to have some uh, ways for the water when it rains to drain into those holes. So in the summer, you were basically putting your bucket into a hole in the ground or a hole in the rock and pulling out water to drink it. Now, it's not very nice water, right? It's stale water that's been sitting there for months, right? But if it's that or dying out of thirst, you will drink that water, okay? So that's, that's the idea behind cisterns. Now, the problem is, <clears throat> what if one year 
there's a crack at the bottom of your system. Right? Because these things are made out of rock. Let's say there's some ground movement that happens, an earthquake, who knows. And now there's a crack at the bottom. And you were counting on that water in the summer. So in the winter, it's filling up. But then in the summer, on a hot day, as bad as the water is, you know, it's this or die from thirst. You're reaching in to get your water, and there's no water because the cistern is broken. Right? And that's the picture that God is using here uh, in this verse for sin. We, Israel hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what our sins are like. Right? We think that they'll fulfill us. We think that they'll make us happy. But after we go ahead and we do what God doesn't want us to do, we're not happy. Right? It's not fulfilling. Right? And God says, he is the fountain of living water. So here's another picture from Israel. Uh, this is a place called uh, Ein Gedi. Uh, it's in southern Israel in Judah. And uh, the ground all around it, if you were you know, to, to go away a mile or two, is all barren and it's all dry and there's no water. But out of the rock, there flows this fresh, cool water and it flows all year long. And uh, if you were to study the geography, you'd understand, well, it rains in the winter and the water kind of trickles down through the rocks. And, you know, a thousand feet lower, two thousand feet lower, it eventually comes and there's enough water that's, you know, there from the winter that the water just keeps flowing all year long. You have this fresh, beautiful water. And God is saying, look, I am the fountain of living water. Come to me. Be refreshed. Be filled. Right? We don't need our sin. We have God. And yet sin deceives us. That's the problem with the disease of sin we all have. We always think that these things that are not really good for us will fulfill us. And we try to find our fulfillment in them instead of in God. And God calls us to himself. Okay. Last characteristic of sin. We'll, we'll pick up again in verse 16 of uh, Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Just imagine this. Giving a command to your soldiers to go and murder babies. Go to Bethlehem. Every baby in that town and in all its districts, meaning surrounding villages, two years old from under, must die. And you're a soldier of Herod. And you know if you tell him no, you're going to be killed. Right? So your job is to go and kill babies for the rest of the day. Right? And here 
they're heartbreaking sobs of their mothers who will never be comforted over what you're doing because Herod gave the command. And that's the fourth characteristic of sin is that uh, sin is a disease that hurts those around us, or you could say that destroys those around us. Um, we see it at the very early stage. Uh, if you had a young uh, child, and uh, the young child might see a toy that another little child next to them has, and they'll take the toy and leave the other baby crying, and you're like, ah, oh, well, you know, that happens. That's, you know, just part of life. But if you think about it, that's really the root of the problem. Herod may not have had any malicious thoughts against the babies he was killing. He may not have had any malicious thoughts toward their mothers that he was bereaving of their children. He was just trying to protect his throne. It's like somewhere out there, there's a new king, and unless I destroy him, I will lose my throne, right? So it was just kind of a, you know, you know this toy is mine, <laughs> give it to me, right? Not thinking about the impact that it would have on others. I remember uh, the first time I was outraged as a parent by uh, something of this type. Uh, I took my daughter, Eliana. She was, I think, around nine months old. And we had a friend from college whose baby just turned one year old. And she invited us to the birthday party. So there we were with a bunch of, you know, babies, you know, in the room, somehow celebrating a birthday. I don't think any of them knew why they were there. And uh, the baby who turned one year old had the goal to uh, use my daughter as, uh, you know, to steady herself as she was trying to stand. Because that's what babies do, you know, when they reach the age where they can stand, they look for something to hold on to so they can get up. Well, my daughter was the thing she held on to when <laughs> she stood up. And I saw this look of outrage, you know, in Eliana. It's like, what's going on here? <laughs> and, you know, as a parent, I was quite distraught. But again, just exhibiting the very early forms of I think about myself before I think of others, right? And uh, we see it at all levels uh, of society. Um, you know, I, it was one of the sins that the Lord convicted me of. I was uh, dating one girl, and uh, I had an opportunity to uh, spend the night with another one. And, you know, I, I went for that opportunity, right? Because I was thinking of myself, not the other person. Uh, and, and I realized, you know, afterward, what I did was, was wrong because I could see that I hurt another person by action that I thought were simply self-serving. That's what sin is. It's self-serving at the expense of others. You don't think about the, the pain that you're causing other people. We think of Herod as a monster because he would kill babies, but uh, we do that too. Uh, it's called abortion, right? And we uh, justify it why? Because it makes my life more comfortable. If I have this baby, uh, it might hurt my career. 
if I have this baby, especially if the baby has some physical disability, it could affect me for the rest of my life. And, uh, and so we use that to justify abortion, which is killing babies, um, basically to serve ourselves without thinking of the impact we're having on others, really the babies uh, that we're killing. It's uh, amazing the size of the problem. Um, this is, uh, I got this from the internet. As of December 31st, 2018, so this is the end of last year, there have been some 41.9 million abortions performed in the course of the year. So this is around the world. About 42 million babies murdered. By contrast, 8.2 million people died from cancer in 2018, 5 million from smoking, and 1.7 million died from AIDS. There were more death from abortion in 2018 than all death from cancer, malaria, AIDS, smoking, alcohol, and traffic accidents combined. Globally, just under a quarter of all pregnancies were ended by abortion, 2018. A quarter of the babies conceived by mankind are killed, right? So what Herod did wasn't that exceptional, right? If we consider Herod to be a monster for what he did, we have to realize that we're pointing the finger at ourselves as well, right? We're willing to do the same thing Herod did to protect ourselves. That's the fourth characteristic we've seen. Okay, so, so there were four characteristics. Right? The first one, uh, sin is disloyal toward God. The second one, uh, let me uh, check my notes, make sure I get it right. So sin is disloyal toward God. Sin seeks to avoid diagnosis. Diagnosis. All right? Sins always deceives us, and sin destroys those around us, right? And uh, the fifth point is that um, sin is a disease whose cure has been determined beyond a shadow of a doubt. Sin is a disease whose cure has been determined beyond a shadow of a doubt. Let me finish the chapter and you'll see what I mean by that. It says now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achilles was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, so this just ends our story, prepares us for next week's message. 
But after Herod dies, God sends an angel to Joseph in a dream, tells him to bring Joseph into the land of Israel. He come, but Joseph is like, you know, I came from Bethlehem, I want to go back to Bethlehem, but I know that guy is really bad, Achilles, the guy who's now reigning over Judea, where Bethlehem is, I don't want to go there. And then God says, that's fine, go to Galilee. And he goes to Galilee and goes into actually the city he started from, if you're familiar with the gospel, even though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary were actually originally from Nazareth. So they're really returning home through God's direction to Nazareth. What's significant here is it fulfills a prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah that he shall be called a Nazarene. Right? And this is what brings me to why I said that sin is a disease whose cure has been determined beyond a shadow of a doubt. Matthew is trying to help us here believe what he already told us in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Right? So he already told us the cure for sin is Jesus. Right? But Matthew seeks to prove it to us. Right? He wants us to recognize it really is. Now, if you go to a doctor and the doctor finds you have cancer or some other disease, and the doctor will, will, will prescribe a certain operation or some other solution, the doctor might say something like, this has an 85% you know, chance of success. Right? The doctor has to say that because he knows it might not work. Right? No cure the doctors will, can offer you has a 100% chance of success. They know statistically they don't all work. Right? So they have to you know, say this has 85% or this has 95% chance of success or this has a 10% chance of a complication. You know, I, when I had a surgery to remove a growth in my arm, you know, they made me sign a document saying, you know, there is a chance this would lead to death, right? They have to protect themselves by, by telling you that there's a chance that things won't quite work out. Now, there's a certain probability of Jesus being the Messiah, right? There's a certain probability of Jesus being the Messiah. And uh, Matthew helps us see how high that probability is by doing what? He continually quote prophecies, just like the one here. There was a prophecy. He said, he shall be called a Nazarene. Why do you know? Jesus is born in a town, not born, but grows up in a town called Nazareth. So he is a Nazarene, right? And that's why Jesus is often referred to as Jesus the Nazarene. He came from the town of, of Nazareth, right? So you say, okay, well, you know, but he's not the only one, right? There's thousands of people who were born in Nazareth. That's not a proof that Jesus is the Messiah. But wait a second. There was another prophecy we read through that he would have to be born in Bethlehem. Well, now, what's the probability of someone being born in Bethlehem and ending up in Nazareth and being called a Nazarene? Well, there's still some possibility, right? I mean, there could have been, who knows, maybe a dozen people in Nazareth that were born in Bethlehem. I mean, there's some probability. We don't know. Now, Matthew quotes two other passages here, right? One of them said, uh, the prophet said, out of Egypt I have called my son. Wait a second. Now it's someone that had to have actually been in Egypt, right, and be called out of Egypt, 
right, to fit the Messiah bill. So you kind of see how your probability becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, okay? Not to tire you too much with it, I have not done an exhaustive study of all the prophecies regarding Jesus. So I rely on studies other people have made. Uh, some of you were with us in Yosemite. I don't know if you remember, one of the speakers actually said he did a careful study. So many people have done it in history. So this person is not unique. But he said, you know, he found 130 prophecies that have been fulfilled by Jesus. So in this chapter, there's actually four, three specifically about Jesus, one more about the massacre that was performed by Herod. But there were, there were three prophecies here. Overall, this person said he identified 130 prophecies regarding Jesus. And he tried to come up with some reasonable way of calculating the probability that all these prophecies could be fulfilled in a person and that person not being the Messiah. Right? I mean, just by random, this being fulfilled, okay? And uh, so he calculated it, and he said the probability was 10 to the minus 70. 10 to the minus 70. Now, that's one of those numbers that don't really mean anything to people, but it would be 0 0.00007 and then a 1 at the end. And that particular um, speaker in Yosemite tried to help us understand how small that probability was by imagining that the universe was filled with grains of rice. All of them were white except one was blue. And you randomly walk through the universe, you step down, you pick up a grain of rice, and that was the blue one. Right? That would be the probability of a single person fulfilling all the prophecies regarding the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Okay? My family likes board games. So uh, we like, you know, we play games that have dice in them. I hope that's not an offense to anybody. So there's a certain probability, right, when you roll dice to get a certain number, right? Let's say I had a single die, and I wanted to roll a six, right? The probability is one out of six. It's like 0.16, right? And that means if I roll the die six times, I'll probably get a six in one of those rolls, okay? Now, what's the probability of me taking two die and rolling them and getting a six? Anybody knows? I'm sorry? I'm sorry, you said 12? Now, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. You'll have to, yes, Eliana? Uh, right, that would be correct. Right? You actually have to multiply 1, 6 times 1, 6, 1 out of 36, roughly 3 out of 100. So if I roll the die 100 times, right, there's a likelihood I'll get two sixes at the same roll, three times. Right? That's roughly the probability. Okay, so what would 10 to the minus 70 look like? It would be me taking 89 dice, 89 dice, rolling them one time, and every one being a six. <laughs> that is the probability of Jesus not being the Messiah. That is the probability that a person could fulfill all those prophecies and not be the Messiah. Not gonna happen. Right? So that's what I mean by sin is a disease whose cure has been determined beyond a shadow of a doubt. We know what fixes sin. Right? Jesus. Right? Jesus came to save us from our sins. Right? Okay. Uh, just finally in closing. 
uh, sin is a disease of which it is your choice if you want to be healed, right? Uh, we say you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink, right? Uh, we recognize uh, the characteristics of sin, right? Sin is uh, a disease that is disloyal to God. It is uh, seeks to avoid diagnosis, but it's there, right? We all have it, even though we don't want it to be diagnosed in us. Uh, it deceives us. It causes us to try to find satisfaction in things that won't satisfy us. It uh, destroys those that are around us. Uh, the cure is known beyond a shadow of a doubt, but we have to choose. We have to choose. How do we choose? Well, it was the same choice that Herod had, and everyone in Jerusalem had, and the wise man had. Jesus was identified. The wise man came and said, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Right? They chose that they would receive him as their king. They would receive him as their savior. Whereas Herod said, no, I don't want Jesus, right? I am, I am willing to, uh, to be disloyal to God. I am willing to try to hide my sin. I am willing to deceive myself. I am willing to destroy others, but I will not have this man to reign over me. So the choice is yours. And it's mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you sent the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins. We recognize that in him uh, is the fullness of life. You provide us with uh, eternal redemption through uh, his work on the cross on our behalf. And uh, we recognize it's a difficult thing for us to deal with that we uh, don't want uh, to surrender. We uh, are all infected with the disease of sin and we need you. We need you to expose the sin in our lives. We need you to expose the uh, severity of the disease and our desperate need to be healed from it. And uh, we need your help to put our faith in the one who came to save us. So we pray here for anybody who hasn't yet trusted in the Lord Jesus that you might help them uh, take that steps of, step of faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.